Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you for being here. What a delight. What could be better today than studying Shir Hashirim? What a beautiful opportunity. How many lovers are in the Song of Songs? It's a question you've probably kept you up at night. Most nights can't sleep. You're wondering this question. I also, since I saw the topic, have been thinking about this, and it's such a beautiful question for such a wonderful scholar today, Rabbi Dr. Devorah Schoenfeld, who teaches Judaism at Loyola University, Chicago. She was ordained by Yeshivat Maharat in 2019. Very exciting. Her previous book was on the Akedah, the Binding of Isaac, in medieval Jewish and Christian exegesis, and is currently working on a book on using Song of Songs commentaries to think about religious pluralism. Can't wait for that to come out. Very, very exciting. And what a wonderful opportunity to engage in a topic and a book that we rarely do here at Valley Beit Midrash and with a wonderful scholar who is our first time learning with her here. So thank you, Rabbi Schoenfeld, for joining us. And the floor is all yours. Thank you. It's really wonderful to be here. And thank you for the very kind introduction. Um, and I, it's great to get to meet the community a little bit. I feel warmer just being on Zoom with you. Um, so I'm going to try to be a little bit interactive. There are going to be times when I'm going to ask questions. Feel free to use the chat function to answer. Um, we're going to look at some sources together. I'm going to ask you questions about them. But first about me, um, as Sarov Shmuley said, I teach at Loyola in Chicago. That is a Jesuit Catholic university. So I teach Judaism primarily to students who are non-Jewish and largely to students who are Christian, many of whom are Catholic. So one of the things that I think about a lot is how to think about and how to appreciate the relationship that non-Jews and that particularly Christians have with God. And, and there's, I'm not thinking so much of the technical questions, how we understand it on the technical theological level. Do they have the same, are they part of, or we, we part of the same covenant? Are there different covenants? What kind of covenant did God make? I'm not even thinking about those kinds of questions. I'm more thinking about on an, imagine, on an imaginative level. How do we understand love of God and how do we understand someone else's love of God? So for me, really thinking about that has required a lot of thinking about the stories that we tell about love. And Song of Songs is a key place where we think about love. It's really been a very important place for both Jews and Christians to think about what it means to love God. And what I came to realize as I was looking at Song of Songs commentaries is that it might be less about changing the way we think about love and more a way of noticing stories that are already there. Um, the question of how many lovers are in the Song of Songs is also the question of how many people can God love? What can that look like? Can God's love for humanity be broader than God's love for one person or for one group of people? So before we ask what is, love look like in the Song of Songs? There's a question that I wanna ask, how many lovers are in the Song of Songs? How many different kinds of love is the, song of the, is the Song of Songs about? All right, I brought you a source sheet, so let's look at some texts. I gave you a quote from the very beginning of Song of Songs. 
Um, oh, give me the kisses of your mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. Your ointments lead a sweet fragrance. Your name is like finest oil. Therefore, do maidens love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Let us delight and rejoice in your love, savoring it more than wine like new wine, they love you. All right, question number one. Who is the lover here? Who's the male protagonist? Who's the guy? All right, now I see the chat box. All right, before we get to God, just looking at the verse. Um, a nameless lover, okay, we don't have his name. That's actually one of the things that makes it um, hard to figure out who's who is. We don't have any names. Um, what's his job? A perfumer, maybe? Or something to do with the bath? Okay. So that's interesting. That wouldn't have occurred to me, but that is interesting. That your ointments lead a sweet, yield a sweet fragrance. Okay. He certainly smells very nice. Um, just in this passage, Song of Songs, chapter one, verses two to four, this seems to be describing a relationship with a king. The king has brought me to his changers, chambers. So there's a king here. Um, now draw me after us, let us run. The king has brought me to his chambers. What condition is the relationship in? Are they already together? Are they longing for each other? Are they not together yet? So it seems like they're already together. It says the king has brought me to his chambers. Okay, um, are they rich or poor? Can you tell? They're close enough to smell each other. Okay, so they have ointments, finest oil, um, and he's a king um, and she's in a relationship with the king. So they seem to be of a higher socioeconomic status. All right, so that's the couple that we have in the beginning. We have a king and a person who's in a relationship with the king, who's in an already established relationship. Um, they are rich and playful, nice, yes. They're in an already established relationship at the point where they're able to play with each other, nice. Um, one of the things you're gonna see, it's not just the characters who change, the relationship dynamics also change. Yes, the you and me are swapping places, nice. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Um, this is Song of Songs chapter one, verses seven to eight. Tell me whom you, who, you whom I love so well, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you rest them at noon? Not, let me not be as one who strays beyond the flocks of your fellows. All right, the woman is talking to a man. Um, what does, uh, what does this guy do for a living? Shepherd. He's a shepherd. Um, and the woman also seems to be a shepherd. He says back to her, if you do not know, O fairest of women, go follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your tents by the, by your kids by the tents of the shepherd. So she is a goat herd. He is a shepherd. Um, they're meeting outside. Um, what's the status of their relationship? Are they, are they married? Are they together? Um, why is besides capitalized? Because it's, because it's translating verse. So besides is going on in the, um, so besides starts a new verse. What's going on gender-wise in the Hebrew? Um, that's a complicated question. I, I'm not gonna answer that, but I'll, maybe I'll get back to it later. Yeah, not together, they are in love uh, at the flirting stage. Um, they are trying to find a time to be together. They're trying to figure out a way to meet up. 
So they seem to be in a very different relationship place also than the couple at the beginning. So the second couple, different socioeconomic status, different jobs, different relationship status. Right, um, chapter two, verses one to three. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily among valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Like an apple tree among tre trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the youths. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my mouth. Um, so here, it also seems like they are outside. At least they're comparing each other to, um, to things that are happening outside. Um, they're sitting outside, um, but they seem to already be in an established relationship. All right, chapter three, verse six to 11, something very different. Who is she that comes up from the desert like columns of smoke in clouds of myrrh, myrrh and frankincense of all the powders of the merchant? Okay, so this woman, um, is she rich or poor? Probably extremely wealthy. Yeah, she seems very rich. Um, where does she live? This seems different from the other ones. She's not living in the palace, but she's also not living in this vaguely pastoral setting. She's coming from the desert. Um, all right, so she's wealthy. She's coming from the desert. Um, and she's in the process of getting married. Um, o maidens of Zion, go forth and gaze upon King Solomon, wearing the crown that his mother gave him on his wedding day, on his day of bliss. So she is a wealthy woman coming from the desert, marrying King Solomon. Again, seems to be a very different set of characters. Finally, Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 8 to 10. We have a little sister whose breasts are not yet formed. What shall we do with our sister when she is spoken for? All right. So here she seems to be very young. She seems to be not quite ready to get married, not quite ready to be in a relationship, maybe falling in love for the first time. All right. We could do a lot more of this. Um, one of the things that I'm working on in my book is trying to, to compare these different passages and look at how different they are. These the differences between these different women. Um, and the, when you look at the differences, it really can seem like, how do we even turn, turn it into, into one, one story to begin with? When Bible scholars read the Song of Songs, they often do read it like this, as a collection of songs, as a collection of different songs about love. Um, these characters are in different settings. They have different kinds of relationships. They have different kinds of emotions. Um, just to give you an idea of the wide range of characters in Song of Songs, here's some differences that we, that we can notice. Socioeconomic, we've already seen. Is she rich or is she poor? Does she live in a city or does she live in the country or in the desert? Models of beauty. Sometimes she's described as black, the famous black, beautiful woman. She says, I am black and beautiful. Um, other times she's described as looking like the moon or like alabaster. Um, so sometimes she's black, sometimes she's white. Um, sometimes she's described in terms that are very conventionally beautiful. 
Other times she's described in ways uh, that seem almost grotesque. Um, like for example, there's places where she's, where she's compared to goats, to a flock of goats. And then the commentators have to um, tie themselves in knots talking about how actually flocks of, flocks of goats are really beautiful. It's like, okay. But still it's, it's a very exaggerated kind of description. Relationship status. Sometimes they're married, sometimes they're engaged. Sometimes they are falling in love and trying to find ways to meet each other. Um, the emotional content. Sometimes she's very eager for this relationship. Sometimes she's running after him. Sometimes she's reluctant. Sometimes she's initiating. Sometimes she's passive. Sometimes she is overwhelmed with desire. Other times she's maintaining her own boundaries. The people involved. I got a very good question earlier up by, from Judy Schaefer, what's going gender wise in the Hebrew? Um, there are places where it is clear that there's a man and a woman, that grammatically there's, there's a man and a woman. But if we break down the, the Song of Songs into its individual songs, um, Rita, as you say, if they were originally tavern songs, right? It's whatever the original way in which they were composed were. If you break them down into individual songs, there are many songs that it's really not clear that it's a man and a woman speaking to each other. Sometimes you have some, someone who's grammatically female speaking to a group of women. Sometimes you have someone who's grammatically female speaking to someone who's unknown, that we don't know the gender of the person she's speaking to. Um, so there's places where it's not totally clear whether it's a man and a man or a man and a woman. Um, and then um, monogamous versus non-monogamous. Um, Deborah Troner, as you point out, um, if King Solomon is the male protagonist, maybe he had a lot of wives. Um, but there are other places where the male protagonist says, this is my only woman, that she's the only one that I love. Um, so there's, so that's also a difference that you can notice in the different songs. So what we see here is that the characters in the Song of Songs seem to be on the face of it, many different characters in many different kinds of relationships. Um, so the woman ca character changes, the male character changes as well. Most obviously sometimes King Solomon, sometimes a shepherd boy. Um, but we see many differences in the woman as well. The differences is not to say that there isn't unity. There is unity of theme and of imagery. The theme is love and the imagery is nature. Um, because of that, there are people who have made the argument that it actually was composed by one author um, because of the similarity in theme. And that you can also see structural similarities. There's refrains, there's language that repeat. Um, in its theme and imagery, so love and nature, it calls back, uh, as uh, Phyllis Tribble points out, to the story of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 to 3, where man is created out of earth and to care for the earth, and man and woman are created out of each other to be helpmeets, to be partners to each other. Um, and the Song of Songs operates as a way of going back to the garden. Um, so this thematic unity may or may not point to a single authorship. There are arguments for it and there are arguments against it. And I can send you some reference about that if you're curious. Um, but there seems not to be a unity of characters and settings. Now, that doesn't mean you can't create a, a single story. Human minds do that. 
when you have a group of interconnected fragments that share themes, that share imagery, but that don't share a narrative, we're gonna, our minds are gonna create a narrative out of that. Um, I gave you a quote for sh from Cheryl Exum, who wrote this wonderful book on Song of Songs, and she explains how this works. She says, when we read a biblical book like the song, we typically start at the beginning and read to the end. And we are unlikely to say to ourselves, I am reading fragments with no connections. Rather, we naturalize events in such a way as to fit them into our understanding of the way the world works. We create connections as we read. We can tell a story out of the fragments in the Song of Songs. Um, one very beautiful um, approach to this by contemporary um, author Ilana Pardes, um, she reads it as a woman's dream, a dream from a woman's perspective. And that's why you have the discontinuities, the differences in characters, because it's this dreamlike logic in which characters and emotional states flow from one to another. Um, but there, you still, there is still something created in any story that people tell. Um, Italia Brenner actually wrote um, about, she's also a very important Bible scholar who wrote about Song of Songs, um, wrote about her approach to seeing Song of Songs as a collection of stories, that it came from how she first encountered the Song of Songs, that it wasn't as a unified text, but rather as a series of songs, because growing up in Israel, she first encountered fragments of Song of Songs sung as pop music on the radio. So she would first encounter them as separate fragments rather than a unity. And that meant that her mind didn't go to the place of trying to create a unity out of them. All right. But in the history of interpretation, as people are reading it as about the, between God's love, the love between God and Israel, people do encounter it as a single story. When Jews and Christians encounter the Song of Songs, they encounter it as a book of the Bible. So a book in part of a larger collection, which is also handed to us, a book, to us as a book. But the Bible, of course, is also a collection of many different things, of many different voices, of many different stories. Um, so when we encounter the Song of Songs, we encounter it as a book. In the history of interpretation, there have been a lot of efforts to create a single story out of the Song of Songs, and that might be the way that you first encountered it. So one uh, interpretation I wanna start with is that of the Aramaic Targum. So the Targum um, is a early translation of the Bible into Aramaic. I say translation because it's really very highly interpretive. Um, the, the, and it's from approximately the seventh century CE. It interprets the Song of Songs as a retelling of biblical and post-biblical history from the Exodus until the present. All right, so let's look at the beginning of it. Solomon the prophet said, blessed be the name of God who gave us the Torah by the hand of Moses the great scribe inscribed on two tablets of stone and gave us six orders of the Mishnah and the Gemara by oral tradition and conversed with us face to face as a man who kisses his companion out of the great love with, with which he cherished us more than the 70 nations. All right, so for the Targum, the Song of Songs is the history of the Jewish people starting from 
Matan Torah, starting from the giving of the Torah. When it says, oh, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, that is the Jewish people looking back to the giving of the Torah. The giving of the Torah was like a conversation between God and Israel, which was as intimate as when a man kisses his male friend. Um, Judy, I saw you were interested in people who read this in, as men and men and men. It's very interesting. The Targum goes, goes there, that the Targum reads this passage is about a man kissing a man. Um, so there's also this particularity. He cherished us more than the 70 nations. I'll come back to this, but this is a very interesting emphasis on the Targum that at the beginning, when it says God chose us, God chose us more than other people. Um, all right, so the Song of Songs is about biblical history. It starts with this kiss, this kiss, which is Matantara. It then tells the story of Jewish history in more or less chronological order. It flashes back to the Exodus, but then goes forward to the building of Solomon's temple, the exile to Babylon, the return from exile and the rebuilding of Judea. And then finally, the second exile. Um, and it ends with Israel in exile engaging Torah scholarship and hoping for a future redemption. All right, so let's read the end. At the end of his prophecy, Solomon said, the Lord of the world is destined to say to the assembly of Israel at the end of days, you, O assembly of Israel, like a little garden, sitting in the house of study, okay, make me hear the sound of your words. Um, and in that hour, the elders of the assembly of Israel will say, flee my beloved Lord of the world from this polluted earth and let your presence dwell in heaven above, okay, et cetera, et cetera. Look up on us and regard our pain and affliction from heaven above until the time when you will be pleased with us and redeem us and bring us up to the mountain of Jerusalem. And there the priests will burn to you, burn before you the incense of spices. So it's a flashback to the Exodus and, it's a, and then locates us in the present, this present of exile. But in this exile also, God is in relationship with us. God is present. Um, although there's presence and absence, God is with us and God also flees from us and dwells in heaven above. Um, but there's also a learning to, a yearning towards a future until the time when you will be pleased with us and redeem us. So there's a yearning for future intimacy. So there's one clear line of history. There's one relationship. All right. So to go back to the question I began with, began with, how many lovers are in the Song of Songs? So in the biblical text, it seems like, depending on how you read it, there could be two, there could be many. In the Targum, it's simpler. How many lovers are in the Song of Songs? I'm seeing someone raise their hand with two fingers. Two fingers, yes. That sounds about right. Um, for the Targum, the, the Song of Songs is a love story one-on-one -on -one between God and Israel. When other characters are mentioned, they are romantic rivals. The 70 nations, there's 70 nations, but God chose us and not them. Two lovers, Hashem and the Jewish people. All right, that's what I thought too when I read this. And 
Um, the first time I taught this class, I was like, yes, the Targum just has two lovers. And then I read this wonderful article by Esther Men, looking at the differences in imagery in um, different places in the Targum. Um, although the Targum tells a story of one set of lovers, God and Israel, the metaphors used to describe their love constantly change. Um, so we saw in the comment on the first line, um, let him, me, him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. The Targum explains this not as a man kissing his lover, but as a man kissing his male friend. So God and Israel are friends. Um, it's comment on 8.1. The Targum compares the relationship between God and Israel to the relationship between a child and a nursing mother. On 2.6, it's the relationship between a child and a male nurse. On 6.2, it's a relationship between the father and the, uh, between a father and a son. The Targum uses a variety of imagery in which humans care for plants and animals and in terms of affection that represent a variety of relationships. Um, Men suggests four possible reasons for the multiplicity of imagery that the Targum uses to describe this single relationship between God and Israel. So she says, maybe it's ambivalence about the sexual imagery. Maybe it's um, trying to draw on some of the wealth of nature imagery in the Song of Songs. Maybe it's a way of connecting to imagery used elsewhere in the Bible. Um, and maybe it's, it relates to the importance of the imagery around Torah study. But I wanna suggest another possible reading and that sensitivity to the differences within the Song of Songs itself. So while the Targum reads the Song of Songs as a unified text, its awareness of the differences between songs allows it to use different metaphorical imagery in interpreting each song. So what does this do for us in pluralism? Well, it doesn't help with us thinking about God's relationship to other nations, but it can help for thinking about how the experience of loving God is ever changing. It can help us with pluralism between religious traditions because for the Targum, the only love here is between God and Israel, but it can help us with plurality of experiences of God over time and over the history of the Jewish people. So how many lovers in their Song of Songs for the Targum? Two, but they never stay the same. All right, let's look at Midrash Rabbah. It's very different. Rabbi? Uh, Rabbi? Yes. I, I wonder whether it's just the author struggling with trying to describe the relationship between humans and somebody who can't be known. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. Um, that, that to describe this relationship, the, the Targum goes in many different directions, many different metaphors, but that's different from someone who we'll see later who uses one metaphor consistently. Um, all right, um, Midrash Rabbah. Um, Let's take a look at um, different passages from Midrash Rabbah. So I gave you one from uh, Shur Shurim Rabbah um, on 8.2. Um, so if you scroll up, I gave you um, chapter 8, verse 2. And, sorry, chapter, chapter 8, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 8 from the Song of Songs is the little sister. Um, we have a little sister who has not developed breasts yet. Okay. Rabbi Barachia explained this text as about Abraham. We have a little sister, this is Abraham. As it was written, 
Abraham was one and inherited the land. All right. She had no breasts. She had not, that he had not yet come to do mitzvot and good deeds. Okay. So here, but the female protagonist of the Song of Songs is read as a specific male character, Abraham. There's other places though, where different specific female characters are read as female characters. So do you remember the woman coming out of the desert? The one with all the perfume and the incense marrying King Solomon? All right. So chapter three, verse six in um, Midrash Rabbah. Who is she coming? Who is, that's who is she coming across the desert? The text speaks of Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav. Um, so she was the wife of Aaron, so sister-in-law of Moses, etc. Um, and who her two sons, who are also Aaron's two sons, tragically died um, from offering a strange fire to God. So the text speaks of Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav, who saw seven joys in one day. She saw her brother-in-law king, her, that's Moses, her brother a, a prince, um, her husband a high priest, um, and her two sons deputy high priests, and Pinchas, her grandson, the war priest. When her sons went in to offer sacrifices, they were burned and her joy became mourning. Then she became like a pillar of smoke. And when you read this back into the story, into the, into the Song of Songs, this describes Elisheva coming out of the desert, coming to be married to God, um, because that's who Solomon is here in the, in the parable, having had many, many great things happen to her, but also having dealt with this terrible tragedy. Um, so she's the one who comes, comes to God out of the desert, carrying all her wealth with her, but still having been through tragedy. All right. Um, Midrash Rabbah in many places has Song of Songs as God in Israel, but in many places also, it's very specific biblical characters and their relationship with God. Um, sometimes the bride and groom are not God in Israel or a specific person in God at all. Um, in the next source I gave you on Song of Songs, chapter four, verse 11, Rabbi Yochanan says, anyone who says words in tar of Torah in public and they are not lovely to their hearers, like a bride is lovely at her wedding, it would have been better not to have said them. All right, so the words, so here the female protagonist, the woman in the Song of Songs is the words of Torah. The, the male protagonist is the person who's hearing the words of Tara. So that's the love story there. <laughs> and then finally, on Song of Songs, chapter four, verse 16, um, may my beloved come to his garden. The Torah teaches us derech eretz. It teaches us good ways to live. That a groom should not go to the chuppah until the bride gives him permission because it says, may my, may my beloved come to his garden. So here, the bride and the groom in the Song of Songs are just a bride and a groom. It's just a man and a woman. So Midrash Rabbah 
is very comfortable reading the different passages as of the Song of Songs, not as one single story, not as interconnected. If we ask how many lovers are in the Song of Songs, according to Midrash Rabbah, what could be the answer? I saw 10, yes, many, many, very many, any number. There could be very many lovers in the Song of Songs and there's no need to create a single narrative that includes all of them. On chapter six, verse eight, Midrash Rabbah has this really very interesting passage um, when it describes Solomon's marriage. Is it 60 or the queens, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Rabbi Chia of Tipur and Rabbi Levi interpret this as about the nations of the world. So it's like there's 60 nations of the world that are married to God. I find that very evocative because traditionally, you know, there's 70 nations of the world. And the Targum also said 70 nations of the world. And it's like God chose us and not the 70 nations. But here it's like, no, there's 60 queens. Maybe not all the nations of the world, but, you know, six out of seven can still be married to God. Um, so I thought that little passage was very evocative there. All right. So how many lovers are in the Song of Songs? Targum, two, but they change. Midrash Rabbah, very many. All right, let's get to Rashi. Um, Rashi states his goal in his introduction that he's going to take the fragments of Midrash and weave them together in a single story. So God said one thing, I heard two. One text brings forth multiple meanings. And in the end of things, a text does not leave its context as meaning. Um, okay, and it is necessary, and even though this is a parable, so he says the Song of Songs is a parable, but it is necessary to explain the parable according to its nature and order, just as the texts are ordered one after the other. So what Rashi says he's going to do is he's going to take all the Midrashic interpretations and he's going to put them in order so that it reads as a story that flows. I've says, I, he says, I've seen for this book many agotic interpretations. There are those who explain all this book in one midrash. Who's that? Who sees the entire book of Song of Songs that can be explained with one midrash? The Targum. And th there are those scattered around, among various midrashim. And there are those who see it as a many different midrashim. That would be more like midrash Rabbah. And I said in my heart that to seize the meaning of the text, to set the explanations in order, and I will make each midrash of our sages fit in its proper place. All right. So he's gonna put everything in order and he's gonna put everything in order by telling a story. This is the story he's gonna tell. I say that King Solomon saw with the Holy Spirit that in the future, the children of Israel will be exiled exile after exile, destruction after destruction, and will mourn in this exile over their earlier honor and will, re will remember the earlier love that they were a treasure above all other people. Okay, so the story that Song of Songs is telling is that Israel is gonna be exiled, is gonna be mourning, is gonna be grieving, and is gonna remember God. They say, they say, I will go and I will return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. So Rashi here is quoting Hosea, Hosea. This is one of the other places in the Tanakh 
or sorry, this is one of the places in Tanakh where we see the relationship between God and Israel explicitly compared to a husband and wife. But in Hosea, the comparison is different. While in Song of Songs, it's about love, in Hosea, it's about loyalty, it's about fidelity, it's about is the wife cheating on the husband? It's about the relationship between idolatry and adultery. Um, so Rashi is connecting to that story to say, okay, this is also a story about a relationship between a husband and wife, but it's a very different kind of relationship. Um, and they will remember his kindness and their betrayal that they betrayed and the goodness that he promised to give in the end of days. All right, so that's what's going on in terms of the love between God and Israel. What else is going on here? Rashi says this, and this book is based in the metaphor of a woman bound in living widowhood. This is very shocking language, and I don't want to run away from how shocking this is, because what, what Rashi is describing here is that God is, is, has sort of left Israel in a guna, right? That, this, that the metaphor here of what the husband has done to the wife is that she's, he, has he has abandoned her, he has left her, but without giving a get. But still, she loves him. She's longing for her husband, leaning on her beloved, remembering the love of her youth for him and admitting her sins. Her beloved, beloved is also suffering with her and remembers the love of her youth and the beauty of her, be of her beauty and the rightness of her deeds. And he remembers that she is still his wife and he her husband and he will return to her. All right. So for Rashi, there's two stories going on at the same time. One is the story of the relationship between God and Israel. The other is the story of this really very fraught and painful relationship between an older married couple that is now alienated from each other, that they're not living together, that she feels abandoned, but she longs for him and she misses him. All right, there's obviously a lot to talk, to talk about here, but let me go back to the question. How many lovers are there in the Song of Songs, according to Rashi? There's two stories overlapping, each with, a, each with two lovers. So how many lovers are there? Four, yes, um, four. How many lovers are in the Song of Songs? There are four. There's two sets of lovers who are both present at once. So for Rashi, this is possible, and this is net, this is possible because scripture can mean two things at the same time. The way the Bible is written is when God says one thing, you can hear two things. So there's multiplicity present in the text, but it's not sequential, it's simultaneous. There's four sets of lovers because two relationships are happening at the same time. These stories are also told out of order. In his comment on chapter two, verse eight, Rashi describes this as a literary feature of the poetic texts. Um, Rashi says, because this is poetry, it's okay that it's out of order. Because it's poetry, it's natural for a poem, for, for the poet to begin with the present and then go back to earlier times. That's why he begins by saying the woman is speaking in the present 
about how much she misses her husband and then looking backwards. Um, so he creates two stories. Both of them are told out of order and both of them at the end are somewhat unresolved. Of course, as a sensitive reader, Rashi is aware that there are other voices in the text. He returns over and over to the daughters of Jerusalem, which he interprets as the other nations and their unrequited love for God. So even in his attempt to create a single story, he creates multiple stories and then brings our attention to the voices in the story that don't quite fit. If the, so if the Song of Songs is about what love between humans and God looks like, what it tells us is that it can look like many different things. It can be different stories overlaid on each other, as in Rashi. It can be different stories that happen one after the other, as in Midrash Rabbah. It can be one story, but one story that always changes and always is in flux and always feels like something different. So the numbers that we've seen, how many lovers are there in the Song of Songs? We've seen two, we've seen four, we've seen many. There is a commentator that gets it down to a number lower than two and gets it down to one, and that's Rambam. Rambam reads the Song of Songs as about the individual's love for God. In his Hilchot Chuba and his Laws of Repentance, he draws on Song of Songs as a way of thinking about what it should be like to repent, to love God so much. Um, in his Guide to the Perplexed, he describes meditating on God day and night. And that's how he connects to Song of Songs. Not, loving God means seeking to know God, striving to know God. So he gets the number down even as, as far as he possibly can to one. Um, so these very many different ways of playing out the story tells us that none of these stories is there inherently. These are all possible stories. None of them are necessary stories. Whatever their stratagems for dealing with it, all of these commentators recognize that the story of love between humans and God is not a single story. The diversity of experiences of love in the text of the Song of Songs, in the biblical text itself, gives us an intriguing suggestion as to why. The Song of Songs uses the metaphor of romantic love in order to talk about the relationship between humans and God. And romantic love is an embodied love the bodies that are involved in this love are different. Their social locations are different. The way in which they experience emotion are different. All of these differences will change what love is for a person. And so what love of God is for a person. Reading the multiplicity of Song of Songs suggests that if what we're looking for is how to accurately describe the relationship between human beings and God, we may not be looking for a single story, a single description of that relationship and the emotions and obligations entailed. The differences between the stories are themselves significant, if harder sometimes to notice. Spending time with these texts helped me to understand some of the limitations of reading the relationship between humans and God as a love story. 
something that the love metaphor can make harder to notice. In a normal love story, the characters end up with each other. That's the point of a love story. They chose each other, they fell in love with each other and not with all the other people they could have fallen in love with or all the other people they could have ended up with. In a happy ending to a romance novel, the protagonist chooses a partner to be with, which means that there's always people who aren't chosen. But do we want to think of God's love that way? The multiple narratives of the Song of Songs suggest that maybe we don't have to. We can think about our relationship with God as a love story. And maybe with the multiple narratives in the Song of Songs, maybe there's enough love for all of us. Thank you. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much. Thank so you. Much to wrestle with. So friends, we want to uh, invite an opportunity for the next 15 minutes for questions. Uh, you may have, feel free to unmute yourself if you'd like to jump in. Hi, um, to me, the most important part was always the part where the lover finally comes to her room and she's like, I, I just did my hair, I just got into bed, you know, uh, not now, it's not a good time. But it's, it's to me that summarizes the whole condition between the Jewish people and Hashem, you know, things go great and they fetch. And um, wondering if you have any comments on that. So absolutely, that definitely comes up in the history of interpretation as a moment of tension between human beings and God, as a place where there's a breakage in the relationship. Um, but if we're looking at the Song of Songs as a collection of different stories, I think one of the things that that can point us to is that, yes, sometimes love feels that way. Sometimes there's this reluctance. Sometimes there's reluctance to this reluctance to open up, but sometimes there isn't. Right. There are times when the the female protagonist is very eager to run after the uh, to, to run after her lover where they where you don't see this kind of reluctance. So I think seeing the multiple stories can maybe help us not, we can see the power in like, yes, there are moments like that. There are moments where the, where someone says no, and that that's a, that can make things very hard and very painful. And there are other kinds of moments and there are other kinds of relationships also. Thank you. Do you think that uh, the all of these interpretations of, the God-Israel relationship arise from uh, less a desire for metaphor than an uncomfortable a discomfort with the frank sexuality of this literature. Um, I think it depends on the commentator, um, but I think some commentators are really very comfortable with the, with the romance that's happening here. Um, and I think, I think Rashi is. Um, and it's not a matter of seeing it as about love between God and Israel instead of a love between humans, but seeing both as happening at the same time. So is the love for God and Israel maybe expressed through the physicality of human beings towards each other? So, to Rashi, it's a mashal, it's a metaphor. And um, 
both of these things are happening at the same time. They're overlaid with each other. They're interwoven with each other. Um, and the text is talking about both of those at the same time. They're both there. Yeah, that's, um, you know, the art scroll uh, translation of the art scroll Sidor has a translation of the Song of Songs in um, before the Friday night davening. And it represents this translation as based on Rashi. And it's not based, I mean, it, it, it leaves out Rashi's insistence that the text means both these things, that both of these stories are being told. Well, Rashi was French, so. Yeah, there are commentators, there are even um, Jewish medieval commentators that do read the Song of Songs as primarily a love story between a man and a woman. Um, I'm not really looking at those because I'm very, uh, because I'm most interested in the theological consequences of looking at the multiplicity of the Song of Songs, but that does exist. Rabbi, what would be some of the implications for primarily, and I'm not, I'm not saying you're suggesting this, but, but for viewing religion primarily through the lens of love than through truth. Could you elaborate a little more? When we talk about comparative religion, I think we often go into the realm of, mm -hmm. of which is true, um, as opposed to understanding a divinity that is um, a loving being in relationship with mm -hmm. many different um, people. Yes. Um Look, people experience what it is to be religious in different ways, but that, but experiencing a relationship with God is a key way of experiencing being religious. But then how do we tell the story about that, right? One of the things that our religious texts can give us is a way to tell the story about the love of God that we feel, a way to put a narrative to that love, to make sense of that love. So the stories that we tell about love matter because we, because the way we make sense of this experience is going to change how we think about, about who we are as religious people. So just to give your own answer, how many, how many lovers are there? In the text, it could be one, it could be many, depending on how you read it. In the Targum, there's, sorry, there could be two, there could be many, depending on how you read it and what you bring to the text. In the Targum, there are two, but their identities change. In Midrash Rabbah, there are many. In Rashi, there are two sets of relationships overlaid with each other, as well as others outsiders, other outsiders who are outside the relationship. What can it, how many can we or should we read it as? I think a lot of it depends on what, on what story you're trying to tell. Um, what I really wanted to show here is that the Song of Songs can be read as having one set of lovers or as many sets of lovers, and that it actually makes a difference, not just in terms of how you read the Bible, but in terms of how you think about God's relationship with humanity and what it means to be loved by God. So, so what do we do with Judaism embracing monogamy, right? Part of Judaism's embracing of monogamy was in understanding that love is finite. Yes. And love is violated when there's more parties involved. Yes. And so part of the attraction of being a soul people in covenantal relationship chosen by God is a sense that that love would be violated if there was multiplicity. 
Yes. And that's, it's really interesting because it makes me feel like, okay, the, so many of the biblical imagery, so much of the biblical imagery about love between God and Israel was written in a polygamous context where maybe you could imagine a love between husband and wife that would not be exclusive. And being in a monogamous context, does that make it harder to understand these metaphors? Does that challenge us to understand these metaphors? It could be a matter of one thing is good for humans and one thing is good for God. Um, that it, that as, you, as you say, it could be that the decision to reject polygamy was a very good decision to make for human beings, but the descriptions of polygamy in the Torah might be still a possible metaphor for understanding God's relationship to humanity. You know, I wonder because it seems to me that um, there's a power differential issue going on, right? When you have multi, multiple relationships and that that actually is very reflective of the context of the time, which is that, you know, you can have these multiple relationships, but you know who the real favorite is, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, monogamy, I mean, just sort of sociologically from studies, we know that um, polygamous relationships tend to be in a context of um, elites have multiple wives. Um, it's a very unequal marriage where the women tend to be relatively powerless. And then you end up with a lot of men who don't get partners at all. Um, so it's, it's kind of like that context makes it a little bit more like shaky when, <laughs> when you talk, you know, when you're saying like, well, maybe God is polygamous because it really does kind of like mirror that actual sociological fact, right? <laughs> which is interesting. Well, should we be bothered by God being, uh, polygamous for his, uh, lovers? Because we, we as human beings are limited by time and energy and space, but we can't project those limitations onto God. Well, I think the point is that like Israel is sort of the, the elevated partner in that case, which is why it's in, at least in the context of what we're talking about, that becomes problematic, right? Like that poly polygamous relationships aren't actually equal. There's always a favorite. And that actually is what's being reified by the sort of the context of the era and God being uh, God elevating Israel as the favorite partner. But wouldn't it be wonderful if God had was capable, and I think God is, of uh, uh, showing each lover that she is his favorite? Well, 60 out of the 70 nations. <laughs> well, the Hosea connection here is very um, interesting also because um, you have the case where God tells um, tells Hosea to marry a woman who is, a, who is engaged in, um, in sex work and who would be committing adultery. Um, and that's you know, technically not something that the Bible is in favor of, right? Um, but yet it still might be a powerful metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel. And then I'm also struck by the way Rashi describes the relationship that he's seeing the relationship between God and Israel as modeling um, is a relationship, is a man who made his wife an aguna, right? That she leaves, he left her in living widowhood, right? That 
something can be a metaphor for the relationship with God, even if it's, that can be separate from the question of, of whether we consider this, of how we want to think about it in terms of, as, in terms of relationships between people. Amazing. This is a great place to pause, uh, Rabbi Schoenfeld. This has been so rich uh, for those who have never learned Shir HaShirim and those who are just revisiting it and the theological themes. Um, so thank you so much for this wonderful session. And we hope thank to you. learn with you again soon and wishing everyone a wonderful day here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so thank much. You. That was wonderful. Thank you.